Good afternoon, everyone, and good afternoon, ACB Radio. We're streaming this live. Can everybody hear okay? Yes. Great. Okay. Do you need one or do you need it turned on? She needs it adjusted. Okay. Well, good afternoon again. My name is Sue Amateur, and I am chair of the Health Issues Task Force, and we are uh, co-hosting this meeting along with the Advocacy Committee. Um, I'm going to introduce the front table, and then I, my wonderful husband has agreed to run the mic around, and I'm going to ask each of you to just say your name and where you're from, so we kind of get a sense of who's here. So... Um, I will quickly, I'm Sue Amateur. To my left is our principal speaker, Megan Ryan, and I will let her say more about herself. Uh, then to her left is Deanne Elliott, and Deanne is one of our um, leadership candidates. Actually, I'm to her right. Oh, we, we switched. they switched. Okay, well, you know, uh, Deanne's first then Megan, and then um, I should have put Jeff in the middle, but anyway, and then Jeff Tom, who is Mr. Advocacy, and he chairs the Advocacy Committee, and um, he also is our officer liaison to the Health Issues Task Force, and terrifically helpful. Um, hang on one second, I don't want to go too long without getting the ALD turned on. Okay. Okay. Well, I think we'll have John start around because I, I know we have a lot to talk about, and I don't want to lose our time. And I know all of you have a busy schedule. So, um, John, why don't you start on the over there on the right uh, or left? Okay. So again, if you could say, <laughs> people are sure everybody's messing with me today. God. <laughs> Just because, God, I tell you, yeah. Hi, God. this is Lori Sharp from Malvern, New York. Say that again. Lori Sharp, Malvern, New York. Mike Cadino, New York. Kathy Brockman, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Carlos Gorgi, New York City. Ann Ann Brash, LaGrange, Illinois. Doug Powell, Falls Church, Virginia. Kim Charlson, Watertown, Massachusetts. Thank you for coming, Kim. Boy, I feel honored. (laughs) Marie, Marie Johnson, Columbus, Ohio. Cassell Wilson, National Braille Press. Alan Peterson, Horace, North Dakota. Donna Hepper, Fort Yates, North Dakota. Hello, Catherine Schmidt Whitaker, Diamond Bar, California.
Bill Herzog, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Nancy Matulis, Dover Foxcroft, Maine. Cheryl Hunt, Austin, Texas. Paul Hunt, Austin, Texas. Erica Tappany, Crossville, Tennessee. Charles Navarrete, West Covina, California. I'm Karen Gorgi from New York City. Deb Cook Lewis, Deb Cook Lewis, Seattle, Washington. David Kingsbury, Stoughton, Massachusetts. John, uh, good afternoon. Thank you, John. Good afternoon. Ray Campbell, uh, Glenelg, Illinois. Karen Campbell, Glenelg, Illinois. Terry Olandi, Cincinnati, Ohio. Sandra Burgess, Springfield, Massachusetts. We missed that. Just sec. Sandra Burgess, Springfield, Massachusetts. Thank you. That's, that's good, absolutely. Hello, I'm Barbara Lombardi, Shelton, Connecticut. Yes, Deborah Turner, Abilene, Texas. Rhonda Garm in Little Rock, Arkansas. Rhonda Garm in Little Rock, Arkansas. Thank you. Nikki Kobe, Forest Lake, Minnesota. Hello, everybody. This is, this is Gary Wood from Lansing, Michigan. Uh, Carmela DeMarco, New York. Uh, Steve Mendelson, San Leandro, California. Frank, you to Washington State. Hey. Rhonda Nelson, SeaTac, Washington. And uh, Steve, I think, are you the one collecting the money for people that want to? Okay, there's a lady back here who would like to give you some money. And I'm John Amateur. Welcome, everybody. Thank you, John. All right, without further ado, we're going to jump right into our program, and we are going to allow a lot of time for discussions and questions, never fear. So our first speaker works with um, Linda Dardarian and Lainey Feingold, so you know they keep her busy. And um, we had a chance to meet. We should thank her for coming. She got caught coming in with a huge rainstorm and was three hours late, so I'm glad she made it. So I want us to give a good ACB welcome to Megan Ryan.
Thank you, Sue. Uh, good afternoon, everybody, and good afternoon, ACB radio listeners as well. Um, as uh, Sue said, my name is Megan Ryan, and I'm an attorney working for the law firm Goldstein, Borgen, Dardarian, and Ho, um, which I think is best known uh, as working with Linda Dardarian and working with Lainey Feingold to, to many folks in this room. Um, we're based in Oakland, California, and we are a, a public interest uh, law firm that's been around for 40 years, mainly doing class action work. Um, and we've worked with folks with disabilities for many, many years, um, and in particular with the blind community, and have done many different cases with ACB, who's just been a terrific uh, partner um, uh, on these cases. In terms of our work with um, blind clients, there have been many, many different kinds of cases. I'm going to talk about a few of them today. Um, and they've been in lots of different areas, but two um, areas that really jump to mind are one in looking at having more accessible banking and especially accessible ATMs. And the other area has been in this healthcare arena, which is what I'm here to talk about today. Now, before I kind of jump in, what I'm, what I'm going to do is sort of talk topically about different problem areas in the healthcare arena and talk about some of the, uh, what's been possible to achieve in terms of solutions. But before I get there, I, I wanted to say one thing that our law firm and ACB and some of the local affiliates like CCB, you have Jeff here today, um, have done is we've, we've often tried to address these issues with companies um, through a process called structured negotiations. And what, that's, what, what this is, it's, it's a little bit weird for a lawyer. I think it's less weird for non-lawyers, but lawyers are always like, what do you mean? You're, you're, you're doing some kind of case and you're not going to court? I mean, where's the judge? Um, but structured negotiations is precisely that. It's working to try and settle cases and reach an agreement um, with a company such as you know, a hospital or a pharmaceutical company without ever having to go to court. Um, and we've been very, very successful in, in that approach, um, especially on uh, issues uh, relating um, to the ADA. And, you know, wh why is that? I mean, there's uh, lots of different reasons. I think one of the obvious reasons is that it's a whole lot cheaper for companies to uh, settle these cases pre-litigation without having to duke it out in court. Um, but it's also allowed for a more collaborative approach to really sit down and try and figure out problem solving and, and using um, and basically helping companies figure out what kind of back best practices they might establish to be compliant with the ADA and to best serve their, their customers or their patients or whomever it may be. Um, so I, I'm going to talk about a, a, a few different uh, areas here um, where folks have come to us and said, hey, this is a, this is a problem that we've had, um, and we've been able to work out different solutions. And there's been some incredible gains made. There's still, obviously, a, a lot of room to grow and more gains that need to be made. Um, but I, I want to celebrate some of the gains that have been made today. And um, before I jump into that, and I'm, I'll reiterate this again at, at the end, that the reason that these gains have been made, it, it, hasn't, it hasn't been because of the lawyers. It's, it's, it's been because of 
like some of the folks, many of the folks here in this room and many folks who are outside of this room who have had an experience where they've said, you know, this isn't right. What, what happened to me today at the pharmacy or what happened to me today at the hospital, this isn't right and I think it could be a whole lot better. And then they come to uh, you know, ACB or they talk to the company directly, they ask for a change. Um, if that doesn't happen, then right away, then they, or ACB, will come and talk with us. And then that change happens over time. It doesn't always, doesn't always happen quickly, um, but it happens. And it's because people see something and are willing to be advocates and step up and say, this isn't right and it can be better and then it changes not just for them but for the whole community Um, and that's a very powerful thing and it's a brave thing for for people to step up and do so the first area I wanted to talk briefly about um, is this area of uh, accessible information electronic and otherwise Um, one area of course is having accessible websites for reading health information, for viewing test results from your hospital, from email, for emailing with your doctor. Um, and we recently had a very good settlement with Kaiser, as an example, with Kaiser Permanente in California. It's a California-only based settlement at the moment, um, <clears throat> which uh, dealt with many different things. So you'll hear me talk about Kaiser a few times, but one is certainly is to have an accessible website. Um, Kaiser allows you to you know, email your doctor via the website, view test results via the website. And just also to alert folks, you know, there's been, the law is still a bit fuzzy on, well, what is the standard? And there's some hope that that will clarify soon. But um, actually, there's new regulations that just went into effect about two weeks ago, I think. No, no, no. They go into effect in about one more week, mid-July, um, which says that hospital um, healthcare websites must conform to the web um, center and accessibility, sorry, the web center and accessibility guidelines 2.0. So that will at least start to provide some more specific guidelines um, for what exactly what does accessibility mean in terms of websites. Um, another issue has that people have brought to up has been this idea of accessible iPads. Um, so we've had folks who have gone to the hospital and are asked to do something on an iPad. Um, so I don't know, it might be something, for example, like asked to fill out some kind of health survey on the iPad. Um, Now, iPads can be accessible, um, but a lot of times the programs that people are finding that they're using are not. Now, there are some problems with this that have been raised to us by entities like Kaiser, for example, because sometimes the program that's being used is from a third party and may not be... um, it may not be accessible. So that's something people have really been pushing for to make sure that hospitals are purchasing programs from third parties that are accessible. And at the very minimum, making clear to somebody whether or not the iPad program that they're being asked to fill out is accessible or not. So, you know, we certainly had situations where folks have sat down and wasted time thinking it is accessible, it's not accessible, then they end up having to do it with somebody in person anyways. Um, And then again, another major issue there too, being that if somebody is doing some kind of form with a healthcare practitioner, a nurse, et cetera, that that 
all privacy rights that should be afforded to any patient are afforded to that person as well so that you know confidential health information is not something that they need to be, speak about with a health practitioner in a public space, but that there's a private space in which to convey that and enter it into the information on the iPad if needed. Um, another issue that's been coming up has been this issue of standalone kiosks, um, both in hospitals, um, in pharmacies, and that's something that we're looking at quite closely right now, so I'd be definitely in the question and answer period or afterwards as well. Um, I'd be very curious to hear um, if folks have been encountering problems with kiosks, and, and I have a bunch of business cards up here too I'm happy to hand out. Um, so these would be standalone kiosks that are inaccessible because they only include a touchscreen interface and don't have audible orientation or instructions and no accessible way to input information. So we've been hearing about these both in terms sometimes of registration at a hospital and then also um, kiosks at pharmacies where, for example, you can use the kiosk to um, take your own blood pressure or something like that, and that those kiosks have been inaccessible. Um, so settlement agreements uh, that we have been able to, to reach, just a few examples um, in terms of accessible health care information, um, has, one has been with the American Cancer Society for accessible website and alternative formats. Um, with Humana for website and alternative formats and talking prescriptions, which I'll get to in a minute. With Anthem Blue Cross for website and alternative formats and with uh, Sutter Health. Um, and the other thing I wanted to mention too, uh, one piece with Kaiser besides the electronic information that has been a very big issue has been getting information at different classes and things like that, getting it in some kind of alternative format of the person's choice. So right now, the and I'll give you an example of why this was one of the key issues we discussed. Um, there was many examples of problems with this when we uh, first brought these issues um, to Kaiser's attention along with um, ACB and uh, CCB and uh, many claimants. I think there was over 35, 40 claimants, Jeff, is that right? Something like that? I think so, 35 to 40 claimants. Is that the, it was taking way too long to get accessible information. So there, there was one claimant, for example, who had um, was pregnant and she was going to a labor and delivery class and there was information given out and she said, well, you know, can I get this um, in some kind of accessible format, please? And they, Kaiser said, oh, yes, yes, you know, of course we're going to get that to you. And like several months later it arrived, you know, well after the baby was born. So that was like a very, you know, real useful information, uh, very timely information there. So part of the, the settlement agreement with Kaiser right now, and, and there's a, a three-year monitoring and evaluation plan as Kaiser rolls all of this out, but is it, it's multi-phased. But one phase is that any information people can get um, in the alternative format of their choice, whether it's audio, braille, etc., um, within two weeks. So it's not perfect. 
um, but it's better than multiple months. And Kaiser is also working right now on having more automated um, alternative format material, especially for some of the key things they're prioritizing what seems to be most key. And one of those, for example, would be after visit summaries. You know, when you see your doctor and there's some kind of instructions that you get following the appointment, that those would be something in a more of an immediately accessible alternative format. Um, the the, the next area I wanted to jump in and, and just talk a little bit about, uh, which has been a very big area, um, we've done a lot of cases on this, and it's been a very important area, has been this issue of um, talking pill bottles and accessible patient information sheets. And we've done cases on this both with hospitals um, and with a lot of pharmacies. I mean, pharmacies have been really the key uh, place there, and as as folks here know, um, <clears throat> a pharmacy that only provides standard print labeling um, is is not compliant uh, with law, and um, you know it is it is not a, a safe situation um, for folks to have multiple prescriptions um, with only standard print labels that they can't read and to be using rubber bands or different boxes or whatever system it is um, to to try and know and try and differentiate those medications and we've had clients who have had you know near misses of accidental overdoses because of that issue um, and, and that's a key thing i mean you would these pharmacies would never give to a sighted person a blank bottle and say good luck to you you know have a have, hope that works out um, so that has been a really really key uh, issue of concern and it's an area where we've um, in collaboration with our partners, have been able to have some really great successes. So a lot of companies have come around on this, and I'm, I'm just going to kind of list out where we are right now. So, um, uh, and well, and I should also say, too, that the, co the companies that have agreed um, to now have accessible labels, now what that means kind of differs a little bit per, per company in terms of what if it's Braille um, or Envision or Talking RX, so there's some different products on the market, and different companies use different ones. But the the following companies are using them now because of of this structured negotiation process that we've been able to do with ACB and with other partners. Um, so Walmart right now uh, has Talking Bill bottles through its mail order and its in-store pharmacies. CVS has it through mail order. We're still working on the in-store pharmacies with them. Walgreens has it for mail order and in-store. Humana, uh, formerly known as RightSource, and that's only at the moment for mail order. Oh, sorry, that is a mail order pharmacy. Kaiser in California. Uh, Rite Aid, um, that's only in-store because Rite Aid doesn't have a mail order pharmacy. Uh, Caremark. Uh, that's mail order, and Caremark's a subsidiary of CVS. And actually, just yesterday, we sent a demand letter um, asking for a structured negotiation process with Publix um, to also begin to provide uh, prescription labels in accessible formats. So um, we'll we'll hear we should hear back from those guys in a few weeks. Um, <clears throat> 
So, uh, you know, as I said, there's there's different ways, and I think people here are largely familiar with this. You know, there's pros and cons of the different kinds of labels that um, that one can have on a on a prescription. Different people have preferences for different ones. There's some good things about some, some bad things about one. You know, one issue we're having right now in the Kaiser case, for example, is Kaiser still has a contract to use the Talking RX. Um, and, a, you know, a challenge there has been that the pharmacist has to record that him or herself. And sometimes there's been incomplete information on that recording or... Um, it's been, uh, you know, the, the pharmacist records it and there's too much background noise, so it's hard to understand. So there's some kind of human error um, problem sometimes with that. Um, some people have seemed to in- prefer the Envision service. So there's different things on, on the market and, um, you know, hearing feedback from folks on what they find works best I think has been really important. And we've, um, you know, with folks in these cases have tried to convey that to uh, some of these companies because we can't say, well, here's the product you have to choose because we don't have the right to do that under the law. But uh, we can certainly help encourage people if they have a choice to think about what product most customers or patients prefer. Um, So... Uh, you know, and sometimes we run into these problems where, for example, with Kaiser, where they have a pre-existing contract that then exists for a certain number of years, like with tar- Talking RX, for example. But I think it's just good to always be pushing these issues because contracts are, te- you know, temporal. They only last for a certain amount of time. And that provides an opportunity for people to look at new options um, once their contract runs out as well. The the next big area that I wanted to speak just a little bit about um, has also been this issue of training of medical staff. Um, and my medical staff, I mean doctors, nurses, medical assistants, pharmacists, the whole gamut. Um, and in our Kaiser case, that was a really important part of the agreement, Um, and Kaiser has actually developed trainings. Um, The trainings are a little bit different for doctors, different for nurses, different for pharmacists. They're they're adapted um, accordingly to who they're targeted at. But, you know, honestly, they're kind of more or less like trainings on... um, how, what are best practices for interacting with people with disabilities? Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, some basic things, but unfortunately ones that people clearly continue to have problems with of, you know, don't grab people, ask first, um, things like that. So that has been a, a big thing. And one thing that's been really nice about that too is, and I'm going to talk more about this in a minute, but um, when... When people, for example, in the in this Kaiser case, when someone says to us, now that this is post-settlement, hey, I was at um, this facility at Kaiser, and this nurse, for example, did this to me, and I thought this was wrong, we're able to convey that back to Kaiser. Now, that person is also... Uh, supposed to and should convey that to member services, but what both member services is supposed to do then is to go in and talk to that specific employee and revisit the training with them and rework with them to um, improve what their interactions would look like at in the future. So it's it's sort of a more um, 
it's a way to you know the training goes across board but it's also a way then to go back and work with specific employees who need more specific help on being better um, in their services that they're providing to blind patients um, also, clearly in terms of, of pharmacies, the, the, for pharmacists, the training of in, in places where uh, the pharmacist is going to record information on a talking label, the information has, you know, the training has been, well, what, what do you record? What's the order in which you should record it? Um, and also a big issue, too, clearly has been, you know, in pharmacies not only having visual paging systems. So when somebody's waiting in line to get their medication, there's a way to know that it's your turn to go up and get your medication besides some name flashing on a board that people can't see. So that's been a, that has been a big issue um, as well, and, and, and that is part of the agreement um, in the Kaiser case, for example, so that there's, you know, that's... that's um, Names are called out now in addition to um, being on a on a board visually. Um, so uh, there's many, many other issues, and I'm happy to talk about more of them, but those are some of the big categories, I think, where there have been concerns. Um, and one thing that I, I think has been really, really important to some of these agreements, too, has been that through almost all of them, there's a period of sort of monitoring. And this period of monitoring, you know, it differs how much time. Uh, I think Humana is like 18 months and Kaiser's three years. Sutter, I think, was like eight years. Um, so there's this, some of that is there's a little bit of, of timed out implementation for, for the hospitals or pharmacies to, there's some kind of timeline to roll out the changes that they've agreed to. But What's been really key about that piece has been, uh, and I'll just use Kaiser again as an example, has been that people have come, been able to come and say, hey, you know, Megan, Kaiser agreed to this and, and this still isn't really working. And here's how I could think it could be better. And we're able to then convey that, people are conveying that directly to Kaiser themselves, but because I think there's still lawyers involved monitoring the settlement agreement, um, that period of change, I think having that monitoring by, by lawyers has also been very, very helpful, and having claimants be able to come forward and say, great, glad you made that change, here's what's still a problem, here's what isn't getting implemented quite well enough, um, what's the timeline for making this change because it's not been happening, you know, has been, um, I think it's been really, really key. Um, and, you know, I've, I've sat in meetings um, with, uh, with folks responsible for the implementation on the side of uh, the company or the defendant, as well as their attorneys. And, you know, I have to say, you know, I do a lot of... Um, I do a lot of litigation cases too, which are quite uh, contentious in the class action arena. So it's actually kind of nice to be in some of these meetings because I do think post-settlement, a lot of times these companies are saying, okay, we've agreed to this and we, we want to do it and help us be better. Like, what is it that we can do better? And to have the claimants kind of also watching what's happening and being able to give that feedback back up to Kaiser or another company and say, here's what's working, here's what isn't. I think has been enormously valuable. Um, it's also made a lot of these companies 
have look towards having somebody really responsible for ADA compliance. And I, I think a lot of these companies just haven't really had that person before. And, you know, these settlement agreements kind of force that position, I think, to be created. And, I, and that's been very, very valuable, too, because then there's somebody internal in the company who's looking at that, at those issues and saying, all right, guys, like, good job over there, but let's be, you know, let's let's fix this. Here's what we can do. Uh, oh, one last thing I wanted to say, too. Um, also, another issue, a big issue, too, that we've had in a few settlement agreements have been these issues of architectural barriers. Um, and, you know, this means so many different things, but, like, an example of it is having correct signage and braille signage um, and, you know, no things that are unnecessarily blocking the way, things like that. And that's been a, a piece of both Kaiser and Sutter agreements and perhaps some others as well. Um, anyway, so I, I think the structured negotiation process has been uh, very successful. Um, the monitoring component of it, I think, has been key. Um, and... I think it's also encouraged companies to hire somebody internally who's monitoring ADA issues and working to improve things. Um, and, you know, again, um, most important in all of this are are the folks who have, and I, I said this at the beginning and I want to end here too, because most important in this is the folks who have said, I had this experience. This happened to me at my doctor's office. This happened to me at my farmer, my pharmacy. And this isn't right. It can be better. I know it can. And I'm going to do something about it. I'm, I'm going to speak up, and I'm going to talk to ACB. I'm going to work on this issue. And it's, it's the claimants in these cases who have made this change. And, you know, what's amazing to me about that is it may be sometimes that through you know, you can improve something maybe within with your own personal doctor, for example. Okay, here's something I'd like to do better. But when you say, I think this can be better system-wide, then a few people are in some cases like the Kaiser case where we had, it was more than a few, it was like 35-something, 40 people who came forward. They changed it for everybody in California. And, you know, as with some of these different pharmaceutical companies, it's been changed throughout the country, and that's that's just a huge achievement. I mean, that that is changing things for the better for um, for the broader you know community at large, and that's just an incredible, incredible achievement. Um, so um, we always encourage people if you if you have a problem at your hospital, if you have a problem at your pharmacy, raise it. Tell people this isn't right. Say this isn't fair. This isn't working for me. And if that doesn't fix it, if it's not better, then, you know, let let us know. Let ACB know. Let us know. Um, I have a bunch of business cards um, that I that are brailled business cards that I'll, I'm happy to hand out that are up here. And for folks on the radio, too, you can always reach us. We have a 1-800 number, which is 1-800- Eight two two five thousand, or email, which is info at gbdhlegal.com. Um, thanks very much.
we're going to hold off on questions until the presenters all get a chance to present, and then we'll open it up and allow plenty of time. So with that, I'd like to um, um, introduce the next person. She is, as I said earlier, one of our ACB uh, leadership fellow winners, which is very cool. And it also, I think what she's going to talk about demonstrates that um, members of ACB can work to make a difference. It isn't just the, the big shots. It's, it's uh, the, you know, members themselves who can make the differences and do make the differences. So help me welcome Deanne Elliott. Sue. It's really a pleasure and an honor to be here today, and I'm just thrilled to see so many people here in the audience who have an interest in some of the same issues that we have in Massachusetts. So I'd like to share with you just one affiliate's experience of working with the Structured Negotiations Project um, that Attorney Ryan spoke so eloquently about, because it really has been a very positive tool for us. Um, in Boston, we're very fortunate to have the Massachusetts Eye and Ear Infirmary. Um, this is one of those Harvard University-affiliated uh, teaching hospitals, and it's very highly rated. It's, it's consistently rated nationally in the top ten, both for ophthalmology and for ear, nose, and throat specialties. Um, I would say that anecdotally, probably a majority of our affiliate membership has been seen there at least once in their lifetimes. And it's a, a hospital that we feel very, very fortunate to have as a resource in our community right in our own backyard. Uh, that being said, I think many of us, and I'm not singling out any particular hospital here, I'm speaking about eye doctors in general, um, have sometimes had experiences that were maybe less than ideal. I think that it's um, occasionally the case where a doctor may have sort of a medical model of disability and they're in the business of saving people's eyesight. And when a patient comes in who is in that one half of 1% of the population where their vision falls below uh, the legal standard for blindness, there is sometimes the temptation to say, well, now your um, situation is better handled by another expert. And as those of us in this room know, we continue to have a need for specialized um, quality eye care, even if our best baseline is different. Uh, in my case, I have retinitis pigmentosa. About four years ago, I needed cataract surgery. So I needed to find a surgeon who could specialize in retinitis pigmentosa and surgery. And I was able to find such a person at the Massachusetts Eye and Ear Infirmary. Additionally, I think that when hospitals, and there are many, many fine hospitals in the country, enjoy a very good reputation and have a very high degree of confidence in the quality of the services they provide, and a group of patient or patients or an individual patient goes forward and says, you know, we have some suggestions about ways you might improve, um, that will be met with mm, varying degrees of receptivity. So um, I think for myself and for others within the Bay State Council of the Blind, that's what we call our Massachusetts affiliate, we uh, had so love-hate is too strong of a relationship. We had a, uh, a love relationship with this hospital, and at the same time, it wasn't uncommon to come home and, and have uh, a few of those things that, that you continued to think about a week or two afterwards, and, and we saw some room for improvement. 
it was in this environment um, that a young woman, Jeanette Beale, um, went to this hospital and had an experience um, that she did not like. And it was um, not like a major medical malpractice event. It was something that I am certain if we polled the people in this room, probably a third of you have had some similar situation with some doctor somewhere. One of those things that you just didn't like. And so she um, went and spoke to actually a city disability commissioner. And that disability commissioner was aware of the work that was being done at Greater Boston Legal Services and referred her to two attorneys, Dan Manning and Alexa Rosenblum, who have been great. And they uh, agreed to take on her case and got in touch with Lainey Feingold at Attorney Ryan's office uh, because she has been um, known you know, for her structured negotiations work. And Lainey referred uh, Jeanette to the Bay State Council of the Blind, knowing that we were active in the area and um, also had some concerns. So we decided to be co-complainants, uh, Jeanette Beale on one side and um, the Bay State Council as the, as the other complainant. And we entered into the structured negotiations process with the Massachusetts Eye and Ear Infirmary about two and a half years ago. Uh, our negotiations are almost, almost finished. We're like every day hoping that we're going to be having the signature. We know it's coming real soon, but we just want to make sure that we dot all the I's and cross all the T's before, um, before it's finalized. So I think in my experience, this method of conflict resolution works best in a situation where you have kind of broad systemic issues and multiple areas for discussion. Um, it could work, I suppose, in an isolated situation where one person has one event uh, with one doctor. But I, I think it's probably a, a better method given the amount of time and effort that an affiliate will invest in this process if it has sort of broader implications and if the hospital in question is one that will benefit a large number of your members and also members of the community because as the population ages into vision and hearing loss, um, ages into disability, I think there are uh, a number of people outside of the American Council of the Blind who will benefit from the work that we do. And we felt very strongly that we had within our membership the, the resources and the expertise to really help this hospital um, up its game. Uh, even if they weren't entirely sure that they needed that, we really believed that we had something to offer them in a, a very constructive and positive kind of way. <clears throat> Our attorneys worked with the hospital to get them to the point where uh, we were all sitting around the table together. We put together a team of, uh, our team varied from time to time, but uh, all in all there were usually four of us who were uh, pretty active in the regular negotiations, plus the three attorneys and um, Jeanette Beal. I think a group of about six felt about right. I think if you get too many more, it can be a little unwieldy. And if you get too few, you risk losing momentum. Having half a dozen people on the team was also useful because we were able to represent a spectrum of experience. We had a couple of guide dog users. We had a low vision person. We had someone who was also experiencing hearing loss. And different people had different experiences with the hospital and with um, medical institutions in general. And I think each one of us kind of contributed a different angle that allowed us to be um, a little bit more um, more thorough in 
the the details that we were able to observe and um, and discuss. We limited the scope of our concerns to patient uh, blind issues. There was some talk about whether maybe we should also include uh, issues concerning employment for Massachusetts Eye and Ear Infirmary employees who had low vision. Um, there was also some thought about including uh, people with uh, hearing loss. And we decided that our particular area of expertise was blind patient issues, so we limited the scope to that. We covered every imaginable patient contact area you could have with the hospital, from the dog service, pol the service dog policy, the location of the dog relief areas, to the signage. Uh, we spent a lot of time on um, accessibility of the website and the way the website would be laid out so it would be very clear who the ADA coordinator was and how one would go about filing a complaint in the event that a person had an experience that was uh, less than optimal. Um, we were able to get uh, WCAG 2.0 AA compliance. Um, it won't happen immediately, but that's the goal, and we'll be taking steps, and there are milestones built into the agreement um, that the hospital will follow as they work towards that goal. We spent a lot of time talking about alternative formats. Some of you may have had the experience of, of going somewhere and asking for large print documents, for instance, and having a very well-intentioned staff person put something in a copy machine and enlarge it, and um, that doesn't always work quite so well. So we got down into the, the weeds and were quite specific about spelling things out. It would be at least 18-point type. It would be bold, sans-serif font. Uh, it, if it's more than 20 pages, it has to be bound. If it's more than six pages, it has to be stapled. There's going to be a number in the lower right-hand corner for Braille documents. It will follow the Braille Authority of North America standards, those BANA standards that um, that many Braille users um, use. So uh, we, we also talked about um, signage. We covered uh, training. We attended a few of their training sessions. We wanted to spell out a little bit more clearly sort of what we would like to see in terms of patient-doctor uh, interaction. So for instance, if you're in a hospital and you're a blind patient and someone comes into your room, we wanted to make it clear that if the doctor has a name tag, they need to announce themselves as a doctor because otherwise you don't know if it's a doctor who's coming into your room or if it's someone who's bringing your lunch tray. Um, and at that point, we actually got a little pushback from the hospital, and we decided that was okay. They were professionals, and as long as we could specify, you know, we would like anyone who has patient contact to have some experience with sighted guide technique. We'd like for uh, people to have, um, you know, good communication skills. We, would, we, we outlined some broad areas, and then we, we sort of stepped back and let them fill in the blank. This is almost like, I thought of it as, as building scaffolding between uh, a very high, lofty, sweeping piece of civil rights legislation like the Americans with Disabilities Act and the actual experience of, of standing in an office and being given discharge instructions in hard copy print when you've just had your eyes operated on and you can't read it. Um, 
so this was a way of, of taking the hospital's very good intentions and, and kind of going step by step to, to spell out what it was that we needed in order to make um, the promise of the ADA a reality. From a logistical point of view, our committee met probably once every two months. We would meet for a couple of hours frequently in person in our attorney's offices, sometimes at the hospital with the hospital staff. When we didn't meet in person, we would hold uh, conference calls within our group. Sometimes we would go months and months and not have any action at all, and that's kind of normal. And then at other times, there would be a flurry of activity as some language was being discussed amongst the attorneys, and we needed to weigh in and and um, see what it was that we thought about the language or how we might want to uh, tweak it. And I think it worked best when we had that small group of people who were willing to elevate this issue to a priority, not that it was you know, first and foremost on our minds, but when there was some moment of activity, it was kind of important to be able to turn things around quickly and get back to the attorney within their time frame. Um, what else? I, the, the financial particulars of the case are being handled in a confidential financial addendum. I understand that that's a, a common arrangement. But the settlement agreement itself, when we sign it, will be public. And we wanted that to be the case because we are hoping to be able to use this as a blueprint for other affiliates to follow and for other hospitals to follow so that we don't have to reinvent the wheel each time um, groups approach hospitals and are looking for some changes. And I think another good thing about this particular settlement, it will um, go into effect and last for five years, is that there are periodic points, I think it's every six months, where our committee will meet with the hospital staff and we'll be able to engage in a dialogue with them about meeting the milestones and what feedback we've had from our members and how things are working out on their end. And it's, we're seeing it really as a beginning rather than as an end point. It's the beginning of a, of a dialogue. I'm confident that this is going to be a really good settlement. I think that if the hospital had hired a group of consultants, they would not have a more thorough um, set of guidelines to follow. I, I think we've been able to, it won't be a perfect, perfect agreement, but I think that we've given them uh, pretty good feedback from our members about what's working and what isn't working. So we're very, very optimistic. And as an affiliate, I think this was uh, a very positive experience. It was certainly positive for me as an individual, and I think the other people on our uh, committee felt the same. As it turns out, all four of us are here. There's myself, there's Carl Richardson, Rick Morin, and Nina Kagan. So if um, you want to tap any of us on the shoulder and, and ask us about our experiences this week, please feel free to do that. And we're looking forward to some other situations where maybe a structured negotiation model uh, could be effective. So good luck to all of you as you go back into your communities and... and um, Fight the good fight. Thank you. That's exciting. And I think we, you can also see why um, Deanne was selected to be a leadership fellow. Terrific presentation. Thank you. Now I'd like to introduce um, 
last but not least, um, my friend and colleague, Jeff Tom, who I guess we just could call Mr. Advocacy because that's what he does. And he's retired now, so we're going to give him more work to do. <laughs> anyway, here's Jeff. So I'm tempted to say, you know, we've had these two outstanding reports. I've stayed up here looking really handsome, so that's all I need to do, and now we can open it for questions. But instead, I guess I'll talk for a few minutes. And mostly what I want to do is underscore some of the points that have been made, because sometimes the last thing you hear is the thing that you most remember. And I think that really you've heard a lot of what needs to be said in a more lengthy and complete way. And I want to just underscore a lot of those points in a summary way. But I do want to mention a couple things before I do that. Um, first, um, one of the things that you can also do if you think you have a concern but you don't really know how to handle it, um, and I'm sure Sue will give you another thing you can do, but feel free to call, um, either get a hold of Tony Stevens at the uh, ACB office, or you can always call me as chair of the advocacy committee. I'll give out my number and email in a second. Um, let me tell you, as uh, you know, Sue, as a member, knows, and as Kim knows, who's also on almost every one of our calls, we have extensive discussions of all sorts of advocacy issues, and we'd be more than happy to listen to yours and see if we can give you advice. So my phone number is 916-995-3967. That's 916-995-3967. And I'm at, my email is js, for Stephen, T-H-O-M, at comcast.net. And we're more than happy to you know, engage in discussions, perhaps lessen the workload that uh, Tony and Eric have a little bit, or perhaps make it greater. Um, we don't know, but but we're happy to help with that. Um, okay, so, oh, and one other thing that I wanted to throw out there, we were talking about different companies and what they do. If any of you uh, that who are Medicare recipients happen to have um, Optima RX as your drug carrier, I want to know whether you have the ability to get, and if you don't know, then ask them to get talking prescription bottles. Because I've been using Braille, and, ha and uh, I know they use Braille in large print, but I'm interested in, and I just switched them, and I'm interested in knowing whether they have talking. Um, I could ask them, I suppose, myself. But I'd rather have someone who actually wants them to see if they can get them. Okay. Uh, Optima RX. They cover a lot, a minute, quite a few states, I think. Um, okay. Uh, one of the things I think that you need to be prepared to do if you think you have a problem, this, a lot of these are going to be be prepared to do X. Number one is document it. Write it down. If you don't feel you're a great writer, and we have a lot of incredible writers in here, but if you don't feel you're a great writer, 
put it on your Victor, put it on your old tape recorder or whatever. Just keep some record of the exact nature, the date, whom you talk with if you can remember. The more details you have at an early stage later on, if you are going to continue down the road, those details may become more important than you realize. So be prepared to document your problem. Be prepared if you are able. Um, once you've identified a problem, let's say you've asked for something in um, some accessible format or you've looked at a website and you see it's inaccessible or whatever, be prepared to write a letter first after you've been refused whatever you want. Because probably what's going to happen if you go to somebody like Linda or Laney, they may ask you to write a letter first anyway. So be prepared to write a letter and get a refusal. It's always good to have that refusal um, in your files so that you can officially say, these folks didn't want to do anything. And, and absolutely, the, the Health Care Issues Task Force, the Advocacy Committee, um, maybe people in your own state that you know, there's lots of folks that can help you um, to take care of that aspect of things. So very good point, Sue. Um, also, uh, when you, at all stages from the very beginning, be, and, and, and I say this advisedly, but be as educated as you can about what it is you need. Now, if you're like me, you're not going to know everything about accessibility of a website. So you're not going to be able to necessarily say, well, you know, these buttons don't work, and that thing doesn't go there, and, and you know, the, those particular aspects of the form don't quite work right. But, you know, you'll know a certain amount about it. And so be as educated as you can so that you can, you know, explain your position as well as possible. Be prepared for things to take time because sometimes they do. They could take months. They could take longer. So be prepared for that. Don't be impatient. Don't, because if you are impatient, you'll tend to want to drop out along the way. Um, whether, and here's another be prepared. Whether it's something that you get early on or whether you have to, whether you go through the complete negotiation process um, with professionals, with someone like Megan, be prepared to accept less than you want because sometimes that's what you get. Sometimes you get less than you want because the technology isn't there. Um, and in this kind of a collaborative process, sometimes you learn that, that you can't have what you want because it isn't possible. Um, there was an element in the Kaiser case where we couldn't get completely what we wanted in a certain area because another of the players who played into the whole thing um, produced... Um, th things that we couldn't work with. And so we had to accept less than what we wanted. Um, so there's always things that play into it that, that you never know about. Um, along those same lines, it's important to understand all throughout the course of your negotiations or discussions, it's important to understand 
the concerns, legitimate or not, the counter-arguments that the other side has. For example, if you want people to produce information for you, if you want people to fill out forms for you, whatever it might be, and they say, look, we, we just don't have the time to do this, or we just you know, um, don't have the personnel, or whatever, um, and you immediately shout back at them, don't tell me that, well, they probably do have real concerns with not having, you know, they, they depending upon the size of the staff and the, the, how busy they are, they do have concerns. That doesn't mean your concerns aren't uh, legitimate, and that doesn't mean you shouldn't ultimately get your way, but, but understand and, tr- and legitimize their concerns and then say, notwithstanding that, we've got to read some kind of a remedy, because... If you, if you understand where they're coming from, you'll be much better off. And I, wanna, uh, I want to look at one more item that doesn't get much discussion. Sometimes you have an opportunity during uh, the structured negotiations to have discussion sessions with, um, the, with your attorney, you know, with Megan and, and, and others, and with the other side. Don't try and play the attorney. They're the attorneys. Your role is to educate them about your concerns. I don't try to play the attorney. I could. It's not like I don't have a... (laughs) It's not like I'm not an attorney. But that's not my role. I've witnessed other people, both attorneys and non-attorneys, trying to play that role. And it gets very frustrating because... It's the role of our attorneys to do their job. Don't take that role away from them. What your role is to, is to educate them as to your concerns, the problems that you're having, and how they've got to be addressed and how maybe they can be addressed. Leave the legal beagles to do their work. Um, I think with that, I'll stop and, and save a little bit of time for questions because I, I think we do want to save that. So thank you very much. I hope that's been instructive. Great. Thank you, Jeff. And when you're successful, write something for the forum because that tells other people we did succeed. All right. John said he'd be willing to run, a, run the mic around. So please identify yourself and then give us your question. Okay, we've got a gentleman right here. His name is Paul. Yeah, that's Paul Hunt. Um, we have a situation, and I talked to Yusu about it earlier this this week, uh, last week, and also I wrote a resolution. I hope it makes it actually makes it to the floor. Um, we have the issue with medical devices, CPAP machines, yeah. continuous glucose monitoring systems, and insulin pumps, and any other medical equipment that we haven't thought of, where you have a touch screen and no accessibility whatsoever. And when you try to call somebody, yeah, first of all, you don't know who to talk to to actually get things accessible. And uh, th- that's the whole issue. And I'm just, I'm just hoping that uh, it, we have a resolution we'll get through and we can then start working on this issue. Megan or Jeff, do you want to address this? Because we know it's not, I, I was it, told, but it's not part of the I, law. And this, I didn't ask them to, so I don't know if you're... I agree. <laughs> I got a seatbelt. 
can you can you tell us whether either of you believe that the accessibility of this kind of equipment is covered under the ADA or is it too muddy? I think that that's what I told Paul. I wasn't sure. Who's this? Hold on, Steve. Nobody can hear you. So, uh, Steve, you wait till I get get the mic back to you. Uh, General in the blue shirt, we'll get you next, okay? Your shirt's blue, by the way. <laughs> Paul's question is a very important one, both from the standpoint of accessibility of medical equipment, of testing equipment, of home tests, office tests, and the like, and also from the related but even thornier context of uh, insurance coverage of accessibility augmentation. I think that we all unfortunately have come to the conclusion that the ADA does not currently uh, afford us any leverage in that area, but I do believe that some of the provisions of the Affordable Care Act might, uh, both for people who are uh, insured uh, through, that act, uh, and through that program and people who are not, but uh, who nevertheless are subject to coverages, to policies which are subject to the law. And I think that's going to be the area where the uh, negotiation and leverage in that area will have to come from. Thank you, Steve. What if I might also ask a question? Uh, okay. Thank you. I'll be very brief. Uh, Megan, you were admirably uh, modest about the role of the attorneys uh, in these uh, structured negotiation cases. But one of the things that I've observed over the years is a tremendous skill developed by Linda and Laney almost to an art form of making it a win-win situation, not only by enabling defendants to avoid litigation, but by allowing them to reap public relations benefits, which often outweigh any conceivable cost of the accessibility. I agree. <clears throat> okay, the uh, person. Uh, we're, we're working our way through here. In the blue shirt. I, I'm glad to know my shirt's blue. Thank you for John that, for telling me that. Is that Ray? Um, it is Ray. Yes. Um, okay. Here's Ray. It, it's blue funny. Shirt it's funny that it's funny that we're having these discussions today because we're in a situation right now where we have a uh, a family member that is in the hospital. Uh, back home, uh, we ha we don't have primary responsibility for dealing with a lot of things. I'll get to my question. My question is, if we were in a situation that we had to be the primary person to pe people to go to or to handle various things, what rights do we? What, what can we? Ex what what are our? I guess our rights, or what can we rightfully expect to get from? You know, a hospital, you know, everything from, for example, if we go to visit the person, should can we expect to be provided assistance to get to the room, everything from if there's uh, things to be signed that they be read to us in a private place or provided in some other alternative form. What are our rights in that situation where you may have a sighted family member that, you know, we're we're the ones that have to make decisions, but you know, to get the information and you know, okay. just the whole thing. <clears throat> Megan, can you address that? Oh, okay. Sorry about that. You know, your rights depend in part on your relationship with the individual. If you have actual rights um, uh, over his or her care, um, you know, legally then you obviously have more rights because you have rights under HIPAA and there, by extension, really rights under the ADA too. So you do have rights to get 
certain things in, in formats, and you do have rights to privacy. Um, so, it, but if you don't, then you have no more right necessarily than anybody other any other person. So, it, you know, you can't really say without knowing more right on that. But they would have the right to request an accommodation in the hospital to be taken to the. Yes, yes, you'd certainly, you know, and most hospitals will even do that. We'll show you around, but yes, you can certainly have a right to. Um, you know, ask for help to find the individual's room or something like that in order to exercise your right of visiting. Does that help, Ray? Okay. Ray did answer and say that was good. Um, <laughs> um, this is Lori Sharf. I have a question regarding the. Um, it's sort of twofold. Regarding the pharmacy and accessible prescription labeling, um, I, I know that, like Jeff, you had mentioned OptumRx and Medicare recipients. My employer changed my coverage in my specialty pharmacy June 1st and didn't tell me. I used to have OptumRx, not through Medicare, though. Um, but I'm also wondering, with the federally insured dual eligible HMO type thingamajings, um, how that will uh, be looked upon regarding accessibility. Do you understand? Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. Okay, I do. good. I didn't. Sorry, I. Maybe you could explain it a little bit. I, I, I do. Right here, Jeff. It, it, it's tricky because you know it depends in part. I don't think it's been addressed really. Um, in terms of the dual eligible um, individuals um, so that uh, I don't know that that in and of itself would necessarily matter but nonetheless you could certainly um, try and assert to the <laughs> to the degree possible and remember we don't have a solid right under the ADA for you know talking prescription labeling so um, you know, you can assert it, and you might get it. But on the other hand, you know, since we haven't completely been able to establish those rights, and we only have, you know, the the best practices provisions, um, they probably wouldn't probably wouldn't have to give it to you. I'd be interested to see what what others might say to that. But, hey, Laurie, I saw you uh, had your hand up, but I'm all the way in the back here now. So we have another lady here. Okay. This is Karen Campbell. Last December, um, I went in for some eye surgery, and the hospital wanted me to view a couple of videos. One was on patient safety. I forget what the other one was on. I tried to view those videos, and the site that, that uh, the link took me to was not accessible. I tried talking to someone about it and um, they really didn't seem to understand what I was getting at and I'm just wondering if you've uh, seen any of that kind of issue it was through M-E-E-M-I um, I just wondered yep. if you've seen any of that I, kind of issue well I'm going to comment <coughs> excuse me I, I think that that would be covered under Section 504, 
as access to programs and services. And I would encourage anybody if to contact um, the Department of Health and Human Services, especially if there's Medicare, Medicaid, you know, federal funding involved. Also, um, some states have pretty strong human rights laws. And maybe something isn't covered by the ADA, but it could be covered by your state. But the clear thing to do is to do it right away because most of the time there's a limitation and you have to file a complaint within six months. So in this instance, quick action would have been uh, the recourse. Uh, Laurie, did you still want the mic? No. Okay. Okay, somebody else? Just, just for uh, us who uh, aren't exactly as uh, well-educated. Can you speak up and we can't hear you. Could, could you, for those of us that aren't, aren't quite so educated in the law, could you specify what Section 504 is, please? Oh, I'm sorry. Excuse me. Section 504 says that any entity, so this would be doctor's offices, hospitals, because they all get Medicare money. Any entity that gets federal money must assure that their programs and services are accessible to persons with disabilities. And that law is actually pretty, pretty strong, and Department of Health and Human Services tends to move fairly quickly in this arena. Um, it's, it's under the Rehabilitation Act of 1973. And under that law, there's Section 501, 502, 503, and 504, and they all cover different kinds of things um, for different areas that receive federal funding. And Section 504 deals with any program or service, they call it, that gets federal money. 508, 508 deals with... Uh, services that are being purchased by the federal government to be accessible. And remember that most pharmacies are going to fall under this because they get federal money. Yeah, pharmacies would fall under um, Section 504 because they receive federal money. So it, it is a law that is often overlooked. And I'll add that one of the people on uh, the Health Issues Task Force has been going to all the health and human services offices around the country and what they tell him is we get complaints from a lot of other people with disabilities but they don't have hardly any complaints from blind people on the record and the only way that we're really going to change some of what has happened to us is we have to be the ones shaking the trees and pounding the sand and if you look at for example Lots of hospitals have interpreter services for people who are deaf because the deaf people really have been out there. Um, so it can be done. Um, yes, this is uh, Ann Brash. Um, I am, hi, Ann. Hi. I am extremely happy that uh, Walgreens you know, has their um, device. My, my problem is that their device lasts only about... Uh, 20 seconds and not much of the medication directions can get on there in that amount of time. Um, so I just wondered if there's any uh, movement to 
tried to nicely suggest to Walgreens that either they make their uh, message time a little longer or that they use someone else's device? I'll let <laughs> Megan, do you? Um, So I, we've, you're not the first person to raise that problem. Um, it's, it's tricky, again, because there's, there's various kinds of devices on the market, right? And um, the, it, it, we, can't, we don't have legally, we can't say this is the one you have to choose, even though there are some that are better. But clearly, this is a problem. Um, I, I, it, it, it's known to us. I'm, I can't remember exactly where Laney and Linda are on that. So if. Um, but should if, Ann contact yes, the record? Yes. Or, or Kim, Kim can answer it. Yes, please. But should, before we, but should Ann contact you? something in the, the record. Yes, and you're welcome to contact me and I'll make sure you get a card as well, but I think Kim has an even more specific answer. Yeah. So here comes the microphone to Kim. Thank you, Kim. Come all the way back up here. All right. So um, I've, I've been the primary ACB point person for quite a few of the structured negotiation settlement agreements with pharmaceutical chains. And and we have been sharing with um, Walgreens all along. In fact, we've shared um, 17 pages of comment from uh, members. I've, I've several times put out inquiries, you know, how are things, what is your experience, and people have responded and, and said, you know, a whole variety of things. Some people love them. They're better than nothing. They're... Um, <laughs> You can't hear them. They're not particularly effective for people who are deafblind, which is absolutely true. I mean, they're probably barely effective for people who have good hearing. <laughs> and um, some some of the pharmacies, the Walgreens pharmacies, are you know asking people to come back and bring them back when they come. So there's been there's just been a whole wide variety of of problematic issues around them. Um, I have a staff member back at Perkins, and she, you know, she picks up the jar, twists the lid, and off flies the talking pill reminder. It rolls under the bed, and she, you know, so there we've had issues with the adhesives and things like that. So all of that's been documented with them, and I, I do feel pretty strongly that that um, that we need to to do something to, you know, reference. To Walgreens and acknowledge what they have done does make a difference, but it, that it is not an effective solution. It doesn't give us enough information. Um, sometimes you get a pharmacist who records the message and you can't understand them. Um, it, they may, in fact, give, you know, you're trying to understand them and you misinterpret what they're saying. So I think there's some issues around wanting to, to revisit some things with Walgreens, and that's kind of where Lainey and I had left it until after the convention. Thank you, Kim. Okay, just a second. I think Ray was next. Boy, I know I'm going to have to buy the wall runner, a, a, I mean, mic runner a drink after this. <laughs> or two. Yes, you probably are. Um, <laughs> my, my, my question, my next question would be, or um, what are the are there any laws regarding and you may have spoke to this and if I miss it I'm sorry are there any laws regarding insurance companies in terms of their websites and access to 
their websites. I, I think, um, uh, for example, Blue, Crop, Blue Cross Blue Shield is pretty good, but it's been my recollection, although I haven't looked at it in a while, United Healthcare, for example, is not very good. And are, so are there any laws regarding uh, there any leverage we can put on insurance companies to make their information, uh, not only the websites, but also information about benefit plans and that kind of thing accessible in All alternate right, format? Let's give, we're going to give this one to Jeff. Probably have to buy him one, too. Uh, well, just a minute, Jeff. I went the wrong way, and we're hooked uh, okay. up in my tube. <laughs> All right. We're going to dance here. We're having fun up here. Yeah, definitely. That's a certainly, um, you know, an ADA issue that you should talk to, uh, you know, Linda or Megan or Laney or one, one of those folks about that issue. We've had negotiations before with um, companies, with insurance companies, and certainly there's no reason why we couldn't uh, do so again. So I would say yes. Okay, there. Okay, uh, Deb Cook here, I believe, has her hand up. I have a. Uh, this is a Deb Deb Cook Lewis. I have a general question. I'm not sure who will have answered this, but it's a proverbial problem, and that is how to help our members think differently about this whole issue, because. Um, Frankly, it, it can be intimidating to start a, any kind of a complaint process. Um, certainly talked about the time and energy that it takes and, and figuring out the resources, especially when people don't know kind of where to go. And also, we've, I think many of us have been sort of taught from youth to figure it out, make it work. And you know, I think about just, I've been making a list here of all the things that I know in the healthcare situation at home that can be remedied and would be remedied if we were able to establish a class to do it. But I'm not a class of one. And, you know, so it's like, how do you get people to, to join you so that, A, you're not carrying the burden alone, and B, there is really a substantial evidence that it's not just your, your sort of problem because they can find six other people who must have worked it out because... Nobody's ever asked for this before. So how do you motivate your members to be able to say as a force, regardless of what we've done in the past, we are going to start asking? Well, one, <clears throat> one way I think, and then I think Jeff wants to add, I would encourage conventions uh, to have a presentation, whether it's from, you know, Lenny or Linda or Megan or somebody from the Department of Health and Human Services, somebody from um, uh, regarding the ADA. There's, re there's um, what do you call, Toby's out, uh, no. There's ADA training centers in each of the regions that are funded federally that do, can do presentations. So I think doing presentations about the law to our conventions might be a way to start moving things forward. Well, I'd, I'd, only, I'd only add to that that it, that it really might help to do things locally. You know, once you've heard a presentation at a convention, why don't you have a meeting at your local chapter level if you have those? Or, or just get a, if you don't have a local chapter, just get a few people toge together for coffee 
or whatever and and discuss this and and you know spearhead it if you're willing to do that i think the more uh, you can drill down to the local level the better you have a chance because so many do so many things do get done locally Megan, I just wanted to add one one more piece to what I think is great advice. And the other thing I think that's been very successful is using the listserv. So a, a lot of times someone will say, um, this was my experience at this particular pharmacy. Is anybody else having that experience? And I'll, and I'll tell you, I, I'm looking for that as a lawyer, too, because a, just a one-off occurrence doesn't, doesn't, it's hard to, you know, get movement and make a change if it's just a one-time thing. But what we often see happening is someone says, well, this happened, anything else going on? And then all of a sudden, there's like a 100 other people who have had the exact same thing or a very similar problem. So that's one way to also figure out how to not be a class of one, but to find others who are in the same situation. Okay, we're going to have to wind this up pretty quick. Okay. Um, there's somebody in the front row. Raise your hand. Okay. Okay, just a second. We're coming up there. This obviously has got a lot of interest for. There've been a lot of hands up. A lady in the front with a hand up. Here you are. Thank you, Professor. <laughs> and, and thank you guys a lot for this uh, panel. It's very terrific. Um, I hope I can ask two questions. And who's this? Oh, I'm so sorry. It's Karen Gorgi from New York City. Great. Go ahead. Um, and I, I hope I can <clears throat> ask two questions. I think the first one will be very quick, and maybe the second will be too. But the first question is, um, Megan said you're working on the uh, drugstore, the local drugstore uh, CBS scene, and they happen to be our... Um, um, you know what I mean, medical provider. You know, that's where I go in to pick up my stuff. Um, is it of any use to you if those of us who deal with the CVSs, the, the actual um, on-the-ground drugstores, is it any use to you that you get uh, notes from us that document the fact that they're not doing anything for us? Or do you, in a way, do you already have enough of that data um, to proceed with what you're doing? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yep. Yes, please. <laughs> is is the answer to that? Yes, please. That would be that would be great. Uh, oh, let me. I'll, I'll make sure to get you one of my cards. I would love to have it. My my second question um, is that in uh, New York City we have a number of um, uh, students and students who are blind and visually impaired who um, are very interested in careers in. Healthcare, specifically EHR, electronic health records management. And of course, we're finding that many, most, almost all of the, uh, of the web systems, the web based systems for um, electronic health records management, are not accessible. Um, and this is a really Never mind. You know, we make we we say things about how this this field is becoming digitized. That should make it a wonderful uh, opportunity for employment for our folks. Ain't happening. And I wondered if ACB um, is planning to do anything in in that area. 
Boy, that's a good one. Um, I, I have, and, I, and I haven't done anywhere near enough. But this has, we actually had, do have a resolution um, on this issue. Um, the, the federal government started granting, I'll try to make this quick because I don't know. The federal government started granting money to the states a good five years ago or more on this, and there has been a ton of work throughout the country on digitization. What really has to be done is that at the state level, you have to find the entity involved in, you know, directing this um, process. So you either do it one of two ways. You either go to your particular company that you that maybe you're enrolled in, and you get them to get the system, you know, changed to, to be accessible, or you work on your state's regulations or you get on the state advisory committee or you know you get input from that direction or maybe you sue i don't know but but yes there the, it's really a lot of it's, a lot of it's got to be done at the state level yeah just a sec to get the mic to her so so what i'm wondering jeff is if if i can punt back to the to you to advocacy and health issues this is an example of a session that has had the collaboration of both committees and wondering if again both committees could take this issue and maybe do some preliminary conversation reach out to megan laney linda see what what the reality is out there is this a department of justice claim is this a structured negotiation issue is this litigation is this complaint driven maybe we could start the ball rolling a little bit by by getting our committees to give give us some guidance and give our membership some guidance yeah this, this is not squarely within the healthcare issues um, you it might know, even engage information statement. access too, because it's electronic and digital. Yeah, I definitely think I've always thought this is one of the reasons I actually got on the task force, but it wasn't quite within our province. But I definitely think that uh, the committee should get together and sort of take a look at this and see what we can do. Okay. I totally agree. Well, uh, I'll put that on my agenda. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> uh, Sue, I had to take this mic away from guy in the back to bring it up front so uh, maybe we should just take it back to him here okay okay and i think i think think it was david wasn't it yeah i felt bad about grabbing the mic from him does he have a question we have to be patient okay uh yes this is uh David Can't. Kingsbury, Massachusetts. In I, the, you're going to need to talk in the mic a little more, David. Oh, okay. Sorry. There we go. A general question about structured negotiation. Uh, Deanne had mentioned that you know soon the one with Mass Eye and Ear will be signed, and then there will be like a post-agreement phase. Are there uh, issues post-agreement that one should be aware of? I mean, one I could think of, again, in general is... You know, a payout comes, and the organization that's gotten a payout might go a little easy from there on in. Uh, but but are there issues that should be thought about um, after an agreement is signed in terms of the monitoring? And have any of these agreements broken down in the past? And if so, what 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 happened then? Thank you. Okay, Megan. It's a it's a great question. Um, 
So uh, every every agreement has some kind of provision in it on what happens if things go south, right? Like what if it's what if it's not working? And it it tends to be um, some kind of agreement to an alternative dispute resolution process. Um, I think often it's mediation um, to you know. If the, if the parties are unable to work something out, then it would have to go to a third party to, to figure it out. So every agreement has that. Um, I'll look at Kim and Jeff. To my knowledge, I don't think we've ended up having to do that on one of those, largely because by the time we've gotten to the agreement phase, there's been so much work back and forth that um, the parties are working fairly well together as a team to continue to try and, and get things done. Um, so I, I, I don't know of one. J Jeff, do you, do you have one that's broken well, down here? I'm going to let Jeff jump in. Actually, I, I think the biggest problem from what I've seen, and maybe Kim will concur, is not so much that they break down um, during the course of the agreement, but that the agreement runs out within, you know, two, three years, and then, you know, maybe the website becomes inaccessible or whatever the agreement was about, and then you have to either, um, the good part is there is a, a, an already existing relation, a pre-existing relationship that sometimes, you know, someone like Linda or Lanny can go back to the attorneys and say, hey, you know, you know we're, we're running into more problems again, can you fix this? And a lot of the times, something will get fixed. If it doesn't, then you may end up with another letter saying we want to renegotiate this. And occasionally, very occasionally, something like that can happen. Um, it happened, um, there was an agreement with AMC Theaters, and that uh, expired, and now we have all sorts of problems, and now out in California we have another case. And it's not just California, there's people from outside the state, and so we're involved now in litigation against AMC, so things can, you know, go haywire. All right. <clears throat> I want to thank everybody, <coughs> excuse me, for coming today. I also want to say that um, the Health Issues Task Force is always welcome for folks to come and attend. Um, we do have a, a, a list I can let people know. To contact me, my name is Sue Amateur, A-M-M-E-T-E-R. So my email is sue.amateur at cablespeed.com. And my phone number is 360-437-7916. Just like Mr. Hunt did, and I said, you know... Maybe you should do a resolution, or he suggested it. And I said, but come to our workshop and bring up your issue about equipment because it impacts so many people. And he did. So that's terrific. Could you so, say the last four digits of your phone number again or say the whole number? 360-437-7916. <laughs> so please join me in thanking our wonderful panel today. This is this workshop has been very exciting. Thank you all for attending.